Welcome to another episode of the Speech Change Repeat podcast today with Ernesto Schmidt. He's the co-founder of The Craftery, based out of London. Hi, Ernesto. How are you doing? Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having me here today. Yes, I'm, I'm very glad that we can do this uh, because, I mean, you have a very interesting background, which you are all going to tell us about in a minute. And um, there's lots of things, lots of interesting topics that we can talk about. And um, you have an incredible journey. And we always start the same way in that sense. So obviously, kind of as the first question for today, you know, uh, I would like to you to go kind of uh, in a storytelling way through your professional life. You know, where is it that you're coming from? Uh, how did you end up with what you're doing today? And um, just for our audience to get to know you a, bit, a little bit better. With pleasure. Um, I, I always think going through the chronology of a CV in a way is much less enlightening than talking about those things and characteristics that might really define someone's um, character and outlook on life. And I guess the defining points for me is that I'm from a, a multinational background. Half of my family are German, the other half are Uruguayan, but I was born in the US and I grew up in Belgium and Mexico and then came to the UK. So a big multinational background, but also critically, the two sides of my family are very different. The Uruguayans are all artists and creatives, and the Germans are all historical engineers and lawyers. And I guess I have those two hearts that beat in my chest, the free-flowing creativity that comes from that side of the family, and then a very structured, rational, no-nonsense focus on execution that perhaps comes from the German engineering side. And I guess what I've done in my career has been, on the one hand, just letting free reign to what I call the transformative power of ideas, which is applying creativity, not necessarily in a conventional artistic way, but creativity of ideas, concepts, how you might imagine industries and businesses working differently and products and services that might not exist yet. So giving free reign to that creative thinking on the one hand, and then always trying to grab those ideas and making them real. So I'm really a serial entrepreneur. I've created more than a dozen ventures in the last 20 years. I've been lucky to sell a few of them. Um, you know, one of them didn't work out. So I've gone through times good and bad, through times great and disappointing. And then three years ago, three and a half years ago, I switched over to the investment side and I created, co-founded an investment house called The Craftery. And what we do is that we back challenger brands and consumer goods that are out to try to make the world a better place by offering alternatives to consumer goods that might be more sustainable or more ethical or with a cleaner supply chain or more inclusive, simply offering a better alternative. So that's me and my career. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, what, what I find quite impressive is, uh, as you already mentioned, right, uh, you really were involved in a bunch of ventures and um, as a founder. And, you know, what I always find interesting is like, what is kind of, you know, the process or the why person really like chooses to, to do that, right? Like why creating things? So, because I mean, obviously at one point, you know, you, you started out at, uh, you know, you, I mean, you did your education and you did, um, you, you started out in a job or whatever. And then, you know, you, you decide to, to follow that path and then like you know, to not stop, right? But like to con continuously kind of like um, reinvent yourself and like be active in that as an entrepreneur. So why, why do you think um, you chose the path to like really, you know, be kind of like a serial entrepreneur and how did that basically come about? Was that kind of natural or how would you describe that? I think that's a terrific question, Jonathan. The truth is that when I first became an entrepreneur, which was 1999, 2000, that was just not really something that anybody did. The conventional career path in those days is that you go to a blue chip university and then maybe you'd start working for a strategy consulting house like McKinsey or BCG, or you'd work in investment banking like Goldman's or JP. And 
Otherwise, maybe you'd become a corporate uh, hound and you'd spend your entire life working up the corporate ladder. The only people who were entrepreneurs in those days typically were looked at with some suspicion because you didn't have the role models then. You didn't have the Elon Musks and Mark Zuckerbergs and, and the Jeff Bezos. They just didn't exist. And the barriers and friction that existed at the time to creating ventures was huge. People looked at you and said, you're much too young to create a venture. You know, I'm not going to back you. I'm not going to give you capital. I can't even sign the lease for an office building because the business that you've created hasn't traded for the last five years. All of these things that nowadays, of course, are long gone. But when I created my first venture, it really came out of an insight that at the time, the music industry was undergoing fundamental change. And this brand new medium that was called the internet stood and had the potential of fundamentally transforming that industry, not just as a distribution mechanic, but really to understand consumers and develop recommendation engines. All of the things that you take for granted now weren't obvious then. And the impetus for me to become an entrepreneur then was just the realization that here is a bold idea that could transform an industry and people's lives. And it was just not optional. I realized that I had to do it. And I hence became, if you like, a reluctant entrepreneur, firmly driven by the belief that there was an opportunity that could leave a mark on the world. And once you accept that being driven by an idea, which will be unclearly formed initially, and it's just a sense of there really is an opportunity there, and you don't have to figure out every single step along the way to get to the end result, you just believe here is an opportunity you then become a storyteller and you tell others about it. And then before you know it, everybody wants to join you on that journey. People want to back you. People want to set up trading with you. And there you are, you're an entrepreneur. So for me, that initial step was not a rational one of sitting down and saying, oh, let me become independent. I want to follow a certain role model that exists out there. And let me really analyze what industries I might go in and disrupt. No, it just was a moment of clarity and insight. And I said, well, I'm just going to have to do this. And nowadays, luckily, the friction that I experienced then, because I was 27 then, and people said to me, you're much too young to create a company. Well, you know what? Nowadays, if you haven't created your first venture by the time you're 17, you're almost considered to be too old. And the barriers for creating ventures now are nil. They're none. And you, you can get a business up and running in a matter of two days using tools. If it's e-commerce, you use Shopify. You can host things in the cloud and AWS. It's so easy to do that I almost struggle to see why somebody wouldn't go out and create their own venture rather than following the safe trodden path of making other people rich rather than yourself. Yeah, you know, that is a very interesting thought. And I've, I've thought about this a lot. And, um, you know, one of my best friends, we always, I mean, we, we, we try to observe this, um, whether, you know, it really is the case in the sense of that, what you just you know what you just said is like back in the days you know it was a really kind of like an outcast right but i mean it's also because you didn't have documentation or basically transparency about what people were doing the way you the way you have today right but i mean like um obviously i would say like yeah there's way more people that um are you know that have other people to look up uh, look up to at the same time have tools you know that enable them to do things quicker but at the same time, I think still that the majority of people or young people as well are still following the same the same path, let's say 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And I think that there's just a fun, fundamental kind of um, fundamental characteristics uh, about people that are founders. But I mean, you know, there's probably studies on that, et cetera. But I, I would also categorize that there's different types of entrepreneurs. And, you know, what you said is you said, like, yeah, you know, I saw the Internet and I thought that, um, 
it could fundamentally um, uh, change you know an entire industry but guess what that that goes for i mean a lot of right at that time there was like all That's the right yeah that identified that right uh, in the music industry and in whatever industry right and said like hey this is really like this this can change everything and one thing that you said what I, which i find very interesting is you know that moment of clarity and um you know we, we just like realize okay you know there's something i'm gonna go for it because idea, I mean, there's a tons of ideas, right? There, there's a saying of the richest, the richest place in the world is the graveyard because of like all the ideas that go in there, right? So like, what is, um, how much do you think is that, that, that factor, that the place, that, how much of a role does that factor play of like clarity and like, and at the same time that idea, right? Because I mean, everybody has some sort of idea. And this is really interesting when it comes to the psychology of founders. The First thing is that I'd say is I spend a lot of time talking with would-be founders or people who are curious about becoming founders and I mentor them. And I spend a lot of time doing that. And one of the most common things that I have to tell people is no one is ever going to give you the permission to be an entrepreneur. Nobody's ever going to tell you, here's a certificate, you're now ready to go and create your own thing. Hmm. The first step is that there is no education that will give you access to it. There's no diploma that you can get that will say that you're ready for it. You simply do it. So you simply back yourself. You back your own ideas. So that's the first thing, this moment that there isn't a defined set in time when you're ready for it. You're ready for it whenever you want to be ready for it. I mean, my 17-year-old son created his first venture when he was 14 and definitely wasn't ready in conventional terms then but he was ready because he had self-belief and he went for it and he was able to inspire others to follow him on the idea the second thing is that people very often get hooked up on what's my big idea i don't really have an idea for a venture to launch if i only had an idea then i would do it well two things the first is the reality of the matter is that the mark of the novice in entrepreneurship is the nda First-time founders are always the ones who walk around with NDAs and say, I've got a brilliant idea and I have to protect it. I'm not allowed to tell anybody unless they promise me they won't tell anybody else. But you know what? The reality is no matter how brilliant your idea might be, a thousand other people will have had it before you're ready. Successful entrepreneurship does not stem from the brilliance of an idea. It stems from the brilliance of execution. For every fantastic product or service that's made it out there, there will have been 5,000 others who had exactly the same idea at the same time or subsequently and simply didn't execute as well. So I always say, tear up the NDA, because believe you me, even if you've had the most awe-inspiring idea now that nobody else has ever had, the second you launch the product, it becomes public knowledge and everybody else will go out and copy you and try to outperform you. The way that you succeed is by being inspired in having an initial concept that you can follow. It doesn't even have to be particularly original. You succeed by executing better than anybody else. And typically, as a founder, you may not have the skills yourself to execute technically, be that on the software that you write or the UX that you design or the commercials that you um, uh, put together. But it is about how you inspire others to follow you on the dream and to make it real. The best founders are magnetic in their ability to attract incredible talent to work with them. The worst founders are the ones that they are the business. They embody the business. They have to make all the decisions themselves. They typically name the company after themselves. I mean, I'll never invest in a brand that names itself after the founder because inherent in that is a complete misunderstanding of what the role of the founder is. A founder is successful not when they do everything themselves, but when they facilitate exceptional talent to come together to execute better than anybody else.
Yeah, I mean that is a, that's absolute uh, magnificent description of that, you know. But if you look, if if you personally look back at like the, the different ventures that you started, how much of a role? Because uh, you know the same this the same as um, what you just described uh, is like an execution and like you know th these typical things that I mean, which are for a lot of people that are dealing with entrepreneurship or have talked to founders, etc. Um, those are the known factors and, and among of others is, is the, this factor of luck, right? Or creating your own luck. And um, I'm not sure how you, how you look at that factor, but if you look at the different ventures that you're involved in, right? You said like, it's about attracting also people, right? And then oftentimes that goes in, for example, with like having the right co-founders, etc. And I always see it like that there's like this feeling, as you said, right? Ideas, there's a billion ideas, but it's about the execution. It's about the people that you're doing this with, right? But then again, like I always put it in this way, like stars need to be aligned, right? Like even though that sounds like a little bit uh, weird, but I, I I have a feeling that there's this moment when like people meet or you meet like some, two other people or whatever, or just like another person and you come, like you think about this idea and then you say like, okay, whatever, we're just going to do it and we're going to go into it. How would you look back at these different ventures and say like, yeah, that was probably like, you know, the moment that I met these people, whatever, and then we went ahead, or there was this factor, it, it wouldn't have happened, and where, where I could also not really impact it. How would you describe that? I would say that of all of the ventures that I've created, the ones that were the most successful were the ones with the co-founders that I rallied around me, had very little to do with um, my own uh, charisma or my own um, liking of them, but it was, so I wasn't surrounding myself with co-founders who were in my image and hence were likable for me, but I focused on the specific skill sets that were required to create a heterogeneous whole that would be able to solve the opportunity and the problem at hand better. Often, early founders convinced friends and people that they liked were like-minded and similar to them to join them as co-founders. Well, because it's easy. You can see that they think the way that you do. You're probably friends already. And it's great. You, know, you think, well, what could possibly go wrong? We're friends. We get on very well. So let's do this together. Let's share the risk. But having a lot of people who think in the same way and look at problems the same way and who are similar to you and hence who are familiar to you in their way and outlook is not the right way to build a founding team. The best ventures that I created on my own many of which were in the areas of extreme high tech. So this is cutting edge machine learning, artificial intelligence. And I mean, I created a couple, had two exits in the last two years, one to Twitter and the other one to Snapchat. Um, there, the co-founders were the exact opposite of what I am. If I am a commercially minded strategist, then what those people were, were extremely talented computer scientists. And typically leading edge scientists will approach a problem by looking at the technology and saying, I love this technology. I can build kick-ass technology and have some papers published on it. Yeah. And then they say, oh, let me think about what the application might be. And that's usually terrible. And they go into completely the wrong categories and sectors and they missell themselves and it's usually a disaster. The way a commercially minded strategist looks at an opportunity is to say, give me the world's biggest, hairiest problem. And then let me figure out what technology can solve it. So it's the yin and the yang. And you put commercially minded strategists together with academics and you create magic. This is just an example for you, which is to say the co-founders that I had there were completely different for me and they were not necessarily people that I would choose to hang out with, 
But the fact that it worked so well is down to the reality, which is that complementary skills are what you require to create magic and to solve a problem in a brilliant way. Yeah, so I guess then the follow-up question on that would be like, how do you get like how do you get together with these type of people, right? I mean, because you as as that um, person that is able to attract people or that is able to like um, I don't know, I would more or less put that for for you know for that generalist strategist kind of a person to to be that person that is kind of outward going etc you know more or less than the the hardcore computer science guy how do you like find your like how do you find these people how do you get together i mean you're not just like saying like from one day to the other like okay i have this idea or let's let's look at technology and and and, and you know fit that to whatever other problem or so i, I i'd say that everybody can create a venture Anybody can create them. You can create a one-man show and just open a shop in Shopify, and there you go. You've created your own venture. The things that are a bit more ambitious and that require co-founding teams, the typical characteristics that are required for really successful founders, I'd say are threefold. Firstly, you need to be through and through optimistic because you need to be able to see opportunity where everybody else only sees problems and obstacles. Remember, if everybody agreed that there was a tremendous opportunity there, it would already have been done. So by definition, unless you have deep inside you an incredible optimism, yes, I see opportunity where everybody else says there is none, you would never go there. So you need to be deeply optimistic. The second is that you have to be imprecise. Because if you're only going to start off on your journey knowing exactly how you're going to get to your end destination every step of the way, you'll never take the first step because the truth is you have no idea how you're going to make it work. You've just got the sense and some analysis and some intuition that there is a real opportunity there and you're imprecise because you're comfortable in believing I will figure it out as I go along. And then the third thing, which is almost the most important, is that you have to be a magnetic, engaging, electrifying storyteller. People want nothing more than to follow somebody else who is bold in their vision and in their beliefs and says, follow me, there is an incredible opportunity here. We will make it happen. And most people are immensely attracted to that. And if you have that gift, if you have the gift of taking something that is complicated and difficult and simplifying it into messages that people understand and can imagine and picture in their own heads, if you have that ability to infect people with your ideas as a storyteller, you will move the world. So I'd say to anyone who's considering really setting out on their own, ask yourself those three questions. Are you profoundly optimistic or forever only seeing problems? Two, are you happy with the ambiguity that you don't really know how you're going to make it work? You'll figure it out as you go along. And three, do people listen when you speak? If you have those three, there's nothing separating you from Elon Musk. Hmm. That's an interesting one. Before we go into what is it that, that, you know, or how you basically ended up with, you know, with the craftery and like kind of the, 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 the idea behind that and, and the story behind that, starting a starting a venture you know is, is really like a it's, it's a bumpy ride and there's like highs and lows and there's like crazy things happening from from all all of these years that that you are in there you know is there maybe like i'm 100 percent sure that you have like one or two profound stories you know which were like which you may, maybe tell uh, tell to someone you know with uh, having a beer or whatever but like something that is really you know, super interesting from, from your time there that, that you could share, you know, it could, it could be based on a learning or just like some crazy, crazy time uh, that you had or whatever, but is there like, you know, one of one or two profound moments from, from that, that you would pick there? I'd 
probably want to share the moment of my failure. I created my first venture when I was 27, 20 years ago. And then the second venture, I sold the first one, and then I created the second one, and the second venture failed. And it was a big thing. I mean, we raised tens of millions of venture capital. We built a business that was a retail chain that had 85 stores, almost 1,000 employees, 100 million in revenues. It was a big thing. And it went bust. It was physical retail in the early 2000s, and it ended up not working. And I remember, you know, I was 34 years old at the time. I had a newborn, and my wife was pregnant with my you know, second child at the time. And I'd just taken on a big mortgage. And my venture just gone bust. Shareholders had lost everything, um, and a thousand employees had lost their work. And I remember driving home that day and thinking, I'm finished. And I remember my friends even whispering behind my back, saying, My God, you know, how do you ever recover from something like that? His professional, you know, his, his work is toast. His, that's it. There's nothing more that he can do. And the reality of the matter is that believing that failure means that you're dumb is the biggest nonsense in the world. And the truth of the matter is that the world doesn't care if you've failed or not. If you've taken a knock, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and you have another go, and then you have another go. And the world admires those who pick themselves up and have another go, rather than the world looking down on you for having failed. And subsequent to that moment in my career when everything was over, I created another dozen ventures. I exited half a dozen of them. I created a 400 million um, investment fund. I was CMO of one of the world's biggest media groups. I mean, the idea that my career would be over because of one failed venture is absolute nonsense. So I tell this story because I want everybody out there to take courage. Don't be afraid to fail because even if you fail, you will come out of it richer in experience and the world couldn't care less. Yeah, I mean, that's super motivational, but, you know, I, I always like to, let's dig a little bit deeper there, you know, like that moment you're driving home, right, and, and it's, you just, you just picture it, right, you, you have, a, you have a child, you have a second one coming up, you have a big mortgage, right, and you're driving home, like, what is it like, how does the next day look, how does like next Monday look? So the, I mean, it does happen to me. I often meet people and people knock on my door and they want to have a coffee and we chat and, you know, more often than not, it's people who are in between opportunities. And the one thing that always strikes me, the one mark that happens so often is that people have just taken a knock, whatever, their venture might not have worked or a job they took didn't work out, whatever, and they're trying to figure out what to do next in their careers. And they're forever apologizing and explaining. And the mark of somebody who's taken a knock is that they personalize what's happened to them and they feel that they have to explain and explain and explain. And the reality is that I meet those people and I'm like, I don't really care what went wrong. I want to learn about what went right. I want to learn about all the things that you've learned and done and all the ambition that you've had and the talent that you have and the unique way that you can look at problems in the world. I don't care if something went wrong. Things go wrong all the time. Whatever, the chemistry between people doesn't work out, businesses change, new CEOs come in, you take a bet, you stuck your neck out and it didn't work out. Who cares? So my advice to those who've taken the knock is to stop apologizing. Focus on everything that makes you unique, because when you were flying high six months earlier, you're still that same person now, even though you've taken a knock. Go back to that person six months earlier, or a year earlier, or two years earlier, whenever it was that you were flying high, because you're still that same person. Don't lose confidence. So driving home at the time, 
I didn't know any of this. And I put myself through two years where I thought nobody's going to hire me again. And I took work that was, you know, I thought was degrading because I felt that I had to. And then two years later, I met you know, my now great friend and business partner and co-founder of the Craftery, Elio, who was at the time CEO of EMI. And I got introduced to him and he saw in me exactly the person that I always was. And he couldn't have cared less about the fact that a venture of mine had failed. He saw the guy who in his early 20s created one of the world's first digital music companies and saw ideas about how to disrupt the music industry and was bold in his thinking. He said, I want that guy. And he couldn't care less. And in that sense, you know, I'm very grateful to Elio for having pulled me out of that moment in my life. And I like telling this story because the two years of purgatory that I put myself through were completely self-imposed. Nobody could have cared less. Yeah. Yeah. So it was all you. And it was like basically you kind of like pulling you through yourself through that grief or like whatever negative feelings that uh, that you were. So one could like then think or say like, yeah, you know, the, the big ones that the ones that we see, you know, which where we never see the failures or whatever, you know, it all, it all seems success or whatever, that they don't have these moments, right? These these moments where they're mentally, let's say, a little bit weaker, right? Where I don't, I don't, I don't believe that for a second. The myth of the overnight success hides the reality, which is that it always takes a very long time to build an overnight success. Yeah. And there is no such thing as a founder who doesn't go through moments of doubt and being scared and mistakes and mishaps. And the thing is not to avoid mistakes. The thing is, how do you recover from them swiftly? And that has to do with having strong beliefs that are loosely held, avoiding the confirmation bias of believing that changing your mind somehow means weakness and hence only seeing the data that seems to confirm what you wanted to say rather than seeing the truth behind it. Absolute nonsense. There's no such thing as challenge going into a venture without challenge and you just embrace it and you accept that it's going to be a roller coaster ride. And that's part of the fun. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's, let's talk about then, because you seem like a guy that is just like, super motivational you know is, is is a good storyteller is somebody that is is amazing to grab a coffee with right to just knock at your door and just say like hey i need some advice and whatever you know but have you had like how how much of an importance did it and does it still play for you to have these people in life where you can just like you know have a cup of coffee with and just like you know have that shared experience, especially like maybe, I mean, you talked about like uh, your co-founder from the Craftery at, who pulled you kind of out, out a little bit after these two years, but like in the, and throughout these years, you know, how much of an importance did it play for you to have these, you know, these people to have a cup of coffee with and just like, you know, kind of, kind of. I think it's, it. I think it's immensely important. The reality is that being a founder is very often a very lonely thing. Because remember what I said earlier, you need to be optimistic and imprecise and a storyteller. So as the founder, you are the flag carrier, the standard bearer, people rallying around you because you've given birth to something. But inherent in that optimistic imprecision is also this idea that you suspend disbelief because you'll figure it out. But okay, sometimes you don't know how to figure it out. And it yeah. can be very lonely and it can be very difficult for founders to admit, I haven't got a clue how we're going to do this. I've got no clue. I've never seen this situation before. I'm completely out of my depth. Shit, I don't really know how to do this. And that's why having a mentor when you're a founder, ideally you're chairman or chairperson, although it can also be an independent, that you really can be open and honest with and you can be yourself with and you can say, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I don't have the skills to do this. For somebody to ground you with an outside perspective is immensely important. And I would, 
if I'm a founder, I would always make sure that I find one or two mentors who've been around the block and who are able to give you that independent outside perspective because it's lonely being a founder very often. If you look at what you're doing right now, I mean, you're in the position of to, like really like do both things that, that you are really good at, right? Which is um, advising people, right? To, to kind of, uh, from your experience of, of, of being an entrepreneur, right? But at the same time, obviously, you know, having a bigger impact by, you know, not like just independently building up a single venture, but then, you know, giving, giving kind of birth through capital, et cetera, and advice to, to, to um, multiple of companies, right? Um, and let's talk about, let's talk about the craftery and like, what is it that you guys are doing there and how, why, why did you, why did you start it? with your co-founder and and what was the story behind that like literally before before you said like okay so we're gonna do this how did this come about yeah terrific so you know across all of the ventures that i've created in my career you know i've raised hundreds of millions from blue chip vcs and corporates and you know, i had some of some of the world's best known investors sitting on my boards and some very well-known big media companies and all that and the reality was that I found it almost, without exception, a deeply frustrating experience because the truth is that conventional venture capital and corporate capital aren't great for growth companies because venture capital and the way VC funds are structured often have completely misaligned interests and incentives compared to the founders and the ventures that they back. There is a built-in short-termism in the fund structure, and often the people who sit on your board have never run or grown companies themselves, don't have empathy with the entrepreneurial process, and really aren't particularly helpful in terms of adding value. You know, that mentoring relationship that I spoke about? Well, unless you've been through the wars yourselves, unless you've built a brand and grown a company and failed at a company and all those things, you can't really provide that advice in a meaningful way. So, in a way, we set out to create the craftery, I half-jokingly say, as the counter-corporate anti-VC, because we just felt that there's a better way. There's a better way of bringing capital and venture together. So we set out to build the craftery, and it begins with us not being a fund. We are an investment company. So we are a company. There's 375 million on the balance sheet, and we invest directly off our balance sheet as opposed to having a fund structure. And what that means is that... Um, we simply can um, invest in brands and have them on our portfolio for as long or as short as needed. You know, maybe they're going to be with us for you know, 10 years or 15 years. Maybe they're going to be with us for six months. It's whatever is right for the brand and the category that they're in rather than imposed by us the capital. That's the really important piece. And similarly, all of us at The Craftery are real operators, real brand builders and entrepreneurs. We're strategists and creatives, and we've created companies. And hence, when we partner with our ventures, we're able to provide real value to them because we've been through it ourselves, as opposed to being merely spreadsheet jockeys and financiers. You guys do have a focus, right? I mean, you don't do everything. So, um, you know, for, for the listeners out there, how did you do the focus on, on, on terms of companies and or let's say industries that you would focus on? That's right. So the only thing that we invest in at the craft tree are packaged consumer goods brands. And the idea really is about change in the world. And when you think about it, there's probably three ways in which you can bring about change at scale you know, to address the troubles of the world. One of them is that you're in government and you get to set policy. All right, very few people in the world get to have the privilege of being in government. The second is that you have limitless means and you can single-handedly vaccinate Africa or build sanitation in India like Bill Gates. Again, amazing, but five people in the world can do that. 
The third is this really unique characteristic of packaged consumer goods. Because the average person engages with and touches and consumes more than a dozen CPG products each day. The foods that you eat, the toothpaste you use, the personal grooming, the laundry detergent, whatever. Dozens of products every single day. And if you take hundreds of millions of people who collectively make billions of consumption choices every day, and you help shift them into a slightly better place, an alternative against the status quo that is more sustainable, more ethical, cleaner, more inclusive, better for you and for the planet, you can bring about change at scale. And you're seeing this everywhere. Big disruption for the last 20 years happened mostly in tech and tech enabled complete change in numerous and countless industries, including industries they would have thought would be tech resilient, like the transportation, hospitality industries. But as we know, you know, Uber and Airbnb are the biggest transportation and hospitality businesses in the world, um, even though they're asset light. But what you're finding now is that consumer goods, which collectively is like a, you know, trillions of dollars are spent every year, are undergoing the same disruption because there is a bunch of consumers out there, not everybody, but perhaps 20% of consumers who care for an alternative that presents a better way for society and for the world. So those might be products that don't accept single-use plastics, or they might be plant-based alternatives to the animal proteins that we eat, offering an alternative to all the meat, fish, and dairy that is causing so much about climate change in the world. Or it might be about supply chains that are ethical, like chocolate that is slavery-free, all of those things. And that's the only thing that we invest in in the craft group, cause-driven challenger brands that have as their reason for being to change the standard in their category to a new level which then means that the entire category ultimately adapts and adopts that level of, of standard themselves. I mean, there's been this major shift, right? Of, of obviously, I mean, with the social media and the direct consumer brands that, that have been established, et cetera. But how do you like, how do you see that kind of developing further? Because I mean, there was like, uh, I'm not sure who said that Reid Hoffman or like, uh, or was it Peter Thiel or somebody that 40% of, of venture capital money goes right back into, into big tech's company uh, for ads, uh, ad spend or whatever. Um, how do you see that brand building, right? That, that now has been disrupted through social media. So like individual people kind of like being able to build huge brands, right? I mean, there's been numerous examples of that. I see that right now as well here, for example, in, um, I've been observing this in, 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 in Germany, for example, a lot. There's uh, been this, this company that created this brand, uh, For Bro, for example. Um, it's, it's, uh, they almost do 100 million revenue now, which, which they built up completely through, um, through, let's say, social media collaborations, etc., launching like different, um, I mean, this is not sustainable or whatever, but I mean, it's just like um, uh, iced teas, et cetera, et cetera, where you think like now the most sold iced tea in Germany right now, isn't like a Procter or Gamble or, what, or a Lipton or whatever product. It is a, it is a, um, a product that has been launched by, for example, a musician or whatever. I mean, think about that. Crazy. How, how incredibly exciting. And you name one great example, but we can look at category after category. You find that Digitally native, cause-driven, challenger brand alternatives are attacking the hegemony of conventional old big brands. And there's a good reason for it. In a lot of categories, big food and big CPG, be it Procter & Gamble, Unilever, or Nestle, or Colgate, Palmolive, or whatnot, have over generations followed one logic. And that logic was to deliver against functional requirements. 
consumer goods are about functional requirements. Think about them as mostly they're about pain here, pain gone, stain here, stain gone. So consumer goods in the second half of the 20th century, which is when they really grew, were about delivering products that would solve functional requirements. And the model of CPG was forever to drive the efficiency in the delivery of those functional requirements. And it means that you end up with products that are miraculous because you can have a household surface cleaner that cleans a kitchen surface for less than a dollar because that's what it does. It cleans the surface, but it also happens to be really bad for the environment because in this search for ever greater efficiency, what isn't being dealt with is what I call the consequence of consumption. Yeah. So if the product merely solves a functional requirement, it does that with efficiency, but you then don't consider what happens afterwards. So you can go to McDonald's to get your fill of carbohydrates, fat, and protein, but it's bad for your health and it's actually bad for the planet. Or you can use the acidic kitchen cleaner, but it's bad for the environment. So what these challenger brands are doing is that they're offering an alternative, which is not to focus on competing head-on with Procter & Gamble and Unilever on delivery of functional requirements because they're not going to beat them on that, but they're dealing instead with the orthogonal problem, which is let me address the consequences of consumption. Mm -hmm. So successful challenger brands that have longevity rather than just being celebrity-led are the ones that are attacking the status quo with an alternative that completely outfoxes the incumbents because it's solving a different problem. Great challenger brands, for example, in laundry and detergents, we have a terrific brand that we've invested in at the craft called Drops, drops.com, which is purely subscription-based laundry detergents. And what they do is that they remove the stupid from laundry detergents. They remove all of the ingredients that are harmful and unnecessary. They make it simple and plain, zero plastic. And it is about removing the BS, hmm. the bad stuff or the bullshit, whatever you want to call it, with which this category has been overserved by Procter & Gamble and Unilever for 100 years. Yeah. So they're dealing with the consequences of consumption rather than saying, we'll wash whiter. You'll wash white just fine, but you do it in a way that is sustainable, ethical, clean, and removes all the nonsense that are completely unnecessary from the existing products that the incumbents offer. So that's the way that you succeed. I think really great challenger brands are not the ones that leverage celebrity because celebrity comes and goes. They're not the ones that can acquire customers by outspending each other on Facebook or on Instagram or on TikTok. They're instead the ones that have a real reason for being there. And the reason for being there is to change the rules of the game and to change what the status quo is. Those are the ones that have longevity. Right. But I mean, like, ultimately, what I, I do you believe that these these challenging brands at one point are able to scale beyond the the group of people or let's say that the customer, the customer groups that um, I would I would associate with uh, that, let's say, have the money to spend on alternative brands, right, that might be still, I mean, are more expensive just because of uh, nobody can compete on economies of scale with Procter and Gamble. And I mean, that is also associated with, let's say, um, look, let's look at the geographical regions uh, that let's say have uh, rising populations, etc. right? Um, I mean, how are we reaching those ones, right? So I, I, I mean, unquestionably, the efficient delivery against functional requirements is going to continue to be 70 or 80% of the CPG universe because an awful lot of people just need to have a stain gone and need to have a pain gone and they just need to get on with their lives and they're not able to don't have the means to or the wherewithal to or the mental bandwidth to try to address broader issues and that's fine but if you just look at 20 or 30 percent of the category being handed over to those who want cause-driven alternatives that are better 
does trillions of dollars of shift in value every year. And what you're finding, which is fast, so there's a huge opportunity to go after, this massive shift in value. But what you're finding, which is so interesting, is that category after category, challenger brands come in, challenge the status quo, and then you find that the incumbents simply have to react. And at that point, you've brought about change at scale. Unilever, a couple of months ago, were announcing that they were going to begin trialing, selling laundry detergents in paper bottles, getting rid of plastic completely. The only reason why they've driven that innovation is because challenger brands have challenged the logic whereby umpteen cubic miles of plastic packaging and rubbish are being sent to landfill every year because it's more convenient and cheaper to do it that way. So the category had to adapt. You can't get plastic straws anywhere in the world anymore, not because governments have banned them. I mean, they've done so belatedly, but originally because consumers said they didn't want them anymore. So it's never going to happen that 100% of consumer goods are going to go to challenger brands. It's never going to happen. But the space of 20 to 30% of consumption shifting to those who are forever challenging the status quo and offering a better and different alternative that are challenging the means of distribution by going digital and direct rather than fighting for shelf space at Aldi or at Tesco. Those who have genuine and compelling stories to tell rather than merely bombarding you with aggressive advertising on television. There will be a space for them and it'll be 20 to 30%, but that's trillions of dollars of value. Because we're running out of time here, you know, and I, I want to I wanna kind of, um, as the last question for today, you know, you said like there's massive opportunities in there. So there's, I mean, there's massive opportunity everywhere, right? There's, if, as, as we said, right, if, if you are one of those key kind of uh, points or key requirements for, for an entrepreneur, if, or if somebody wants to be an entrepreneur, is just to be purely op opportunistic in, in any sense, right? If, if you're right now and I'm, uh, you're in a perfect position, you know, that uh, to, to kind of overlook um, the, the kind of the venture world, the entrepreneurial world, right? If, if you would be, let's say, in the position right now to just say like, okay, guys, you know, there's like people that are listening right now that are, um, you know, maybe want to become entrepreneurs or are already like, you know, at the, in the process of like thinking about what, what to start or where to go at, you know, what are some of the areas that you personally, like from your perspective would say like, this is where I would look at, you know, or those are the, those are if you want impact or if you want like challenges that, that are ready to solve, you know, because oftentimes it's also about timing, right? That's another variable that we, that we didn't touch upon on. If from now, let's say in the next five years building, right? In five years, they're going to be ready, like to be at the peak, for example, now telehealth through to, during COVID, et cetera, right? And just as an example, what would that be? Look, honestly, the reality of the matter is that wherever you look, you will see opportunity and disruption. And we can cast the net very wide. In the tech arena, I would say that the AR, VR space is entering an immensely exciting area. And the sorts of experiences that we'll be able to have through AR and VR that are coming up in the next few years are amazing. And uh, you know, the venture that I was very uh, privileged to chair and ended up selling to Snapchat a year ago was all about um, augmenting uh, reality with some really amazing computer vision technology. So there's plenty in that arena there. There's plenty of opportunity in financial services and disrupting financial services and tech as well. So go for it, knock yourself out. When it comes to consumer goods, I'd say any category in consumer goods is ripe for disruption because the truth is that we've had tech disruption ready for a very long time. And arguably we peak tech already six years ago or so. 
And it's, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that there isn't opportunity in tech, but arguably the days when two girls and two guys in the garage could create the next Google with just 200,000 venture funding, those may very well be over. I mean, the Googles and the Facebooks and the snaps of this world already exist. So that's hard to compete with now. And they have gigantic balance sheets and will spend trillions of dollars on anything required to make it work. So maybe that's harder. In consumer goods, you're just at the birth of it. In any product category that you look at, remembering that CPG was about the efficient delivery of functional requirements and that has as a consequence that there's lots of garbage in there. The ingredients are garbage, the supply chain is garbage, the polluting effects or the after effects are garbage. There's opportunity to go in there and say, I can find a better way. If you want me to really point to specific categories that I think are exciting, I'd say plant-based alternatives to animal proteins are super exciting. I'm in no doubt in my mind that we will look back at this time you know, 2020, 2021, in the same way that we look at 1999, 2000 as the turning point for the information revolution and the birth of the internet and everything that changed afterwards. I think that we're now at the birth of the nutrition revolution. And we will look back in 10 years time at this as being the moment, the pivotal moment when our relationship with food changed. And we stopped relying on the incredibly inefficient way of producing proteins by feeding animals plants so that they grow in cycles so that we can then consume them to have the proteins that come out of the plants to begin with anyway. And that the problem was solved, not by a holier than thou kind of aggressive veganism that looks down on people who consume animal proteins, but by providing and developing alternatives that are nutritious, delicious, creative, value for money and widely available. In 10 years time, we'll be looking at our supermarket shelves and there will be a whole array of plant-based products that don't just try to emulate beef and chicken and dairy, but create entirely new textures and flavors using really clever technology that combines plant-based proteins and ingredients into new flavor experiences that are nutritious and delicious in ways that we can't even conceive of now. So I would go hell for leather into plant-based food. And of course, at the craft we were backers of NotCo, who've just achieved the unicorn status and who do really interesting work combining machine learning, artificial intelligence to recreate animal-based proteins um, in um, using plant combinations at the molecular level, which is really interesting. So that's definitely an area to go into. And then the other one is next generation health and well-being. So there's a lot of awareness that's emerging now that the conventional way in which we try to deliver health, which is by killing organisms with antibiotics and trying to suppress things, is counter to the symbiotic nature in which our bodies live. And learnings about the microbiome, not only just gut microbiome, but also skin microbiome and oral microbiome, et cetera, and how we live in symbiosis with other organisms rather than trying to kill them, is providing learnings for completely new forms of, of health. And of course, we're pioneering investors in seed, seed.com, who are world leaders in taking learnings from academia at the cutting edge to develop probiotic and prebiotic microbiome-based products um, that are completely challenging the over-reliance that we might have on antibiotics and conventional medication medicine. So the vitamins, minerals, and supplement space, be that in high science like the microbiome, but also just thinking about active natural ingredients, now you can harvest active natural ingredients, be they you know, mushrooms or, or other, for your benefit and health is a huge area of opportunity and growth, unquestionably. So that's what I'd look into. What a great way to end. Hey, Ernesto, this was really great having you. It was super interesting. Um, you know, you hyped me up. Uh, same, I guess, with our audience when this episode is going to come up. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Jonathan, my pleasure.